Hey, are you into werewolves, mad scientists, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. I don't care that they put the sign on after the bathroom was built. You still have to wash your hands before you leave, Gavin. The following podcast contains... Damn, that's nasty. I'm sorry. That was nasty. That's just nasty. That's just nasty. Oh, that's nasty. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you decided that Republican light was what the party was asking for, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host Dave Bledsoe and this is a Friday, August 4th, 2017. I can't believe it's not better edition of the show where we talk about the purity of the Democrat Party. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Bab Jush, Democrat for Congress 2018. Bab Jush is the kind of Democrat the people are looking for next year. Centrist with a moderate fiscal and social policies and flexibility to change towards whatever you need. Bab Jush is not low energy. He's the dynamo of the Democrats who believes in the power of Wall Street to affect positive change in whatever district you think I should run in. Bab Jush hates Donald Trump with the fire of a thousand burning suns because Trump was mean to me, I mean, Trump was mean to him in 2016. So put your hands together and please clap for Beb Jush, Democrat for Congress. Somewhere, you tell me where, I'll be there. Paid for by Beb Jush for Congress. I'm Jeb Bush, and I approve this message. Our early attempts at a tractor beam went through several preparations. Preparations A through G were a complete failure. But now, ladies and gentlemen, we finally have a working tractor beam, which we shall call Preparation H. What? Why don't you just call it Operation Ass Cream, you ass? I'm sorry, did you want some ice cream? Yes, I'd love some chocolate ass cream. Perhaps later. Dr. Evil, I love your plan. Yeah, eh? Yeah, eh, Doctor, it's a really good plan. Yes, Frau, on the whole, I think Preparation H feels good. (laughs) What is it now? No, nothing. You know what? I agree. Preparation H does feel good, on the whole. This week's show does not, uh, doesn't come easy to me. It's required me to adjust some long-held attitudes about how I think campaigns and indeed the government ought to work. For the past few years, I've found my fires were cooling. I started to think that moderation was the way to go. I said to myself, self, I said, there's too much conflict. There's too much tension. There has been too much violence, too much pain. Just walk away, and I spare you lives. Just walk away, and there will be an end to the horror. Maybe we could all just, I don't know, get along. So what if my party didn't represent all of my views? So long as I would agree with most of them and we were winning, things were okay, right? This is why I was a vocal and enthusiastic supporter of Hillary, with whom I broke barely 50% concurrence. But hey, you know, that Bernie guy was never going to get elected. (laughs) Of course, we all know that Bernie did not get elected. 
The problem was, as you may have noticed by the constant shitter fire that used to be the United States of America, neither did Hillary. You noticed, I noticed, we all noticed. During the ensuing weeks, as the rank and the file of the party took to the streets, the phones, and our bank accounts, the party itself seemed to struggle with how to regain relevance and, most importantly, seats during fucking next year's midterms. So, uh, apparently the folks in D.C. hired Eddie Draper, Don Draper's infinitely less talented cousin, to do their ad campaign, because not too long ago they premiered their new slogan for America, a better deal. That's it? Huh. I mean, you guys spent all that money. Because you know you spent, like, millions of dollars. You hired a bunch of marketing douchebags who went around and presumably tested the shit out of your ideas all over the country with all kinds of Americans, and what you come back with is a better deal? Is this how the test marketing went? Okay, 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 uh, so uh, here's what we got. We call it a, a better deal. A better deal than what? Well, what do you mean? What do you mean? Then what we have now? But the Democrats don't have anything now. Therefore, ipso facto, it's a better deal. Than nothing? Correct. I'm moving to Canada. See, the people love it. A massive, embarrassing loss to a 4chan post taken on human shape, and the best you got is a callback to a social program that's pushing 100 years old. We are so fucked. I mean, to be fair, there is a lot to like in the better deal. A $15 an hour minimum wage, a trillion dollar infrastructure plan, a free college for all, and tax subsidies to train people into jobs that can't be filled because the American education system is structured to train people to play video games and watch reality TV. Hell, the Democrats even promised to take on corporate megalopolies that dominate the corporate culture in this country. In short, they took most of Bernie's campaign platform and said, we'll do that. The ideas aren't bad, it's just the branding sucks. And in modern America, you ain't shit without branding. Do you think people actually like drinking canoe beers? It's fucking close to water. No, but put a girl in a bikini and a talking dog and some idiot's gonna buy it. Oh, for God's sakes, do not put any of our current political figures in a bikini. Not any of them. That's not what I'm saying we should be doing. But... At the same time, the party is formulating its grand strategy to field candidates that can win in House races in the coming elections, big and small. I want to jump forward for just a second to talk about the next big election, the presidential in 2020, because we seem to be fucking fixated on that. Assuming we're not picking through the wreckage trying to find a can of beans to eat by then, some of the names being mentioned are about what you would imagine. Bernie is high on the list. Despite the fact by the time that election actually comes around, he will be slightly older than the formation of the solar system. Too mean. Sorry. Not that old people, which I am marching toward, can't do anything they set their mind to, with the exception of sleep all night without needing to get up and taking a piss, according to my life experience. Elizabeth Warren is on the list, obviously. Kamala Harris, the firebrand senator from California. Cory Booker and some guy named Carl who's not actually a politician, but just a delivery dude who was in the room while we were writing down names. There were a few other names that cropped up, particularly among the political press punditry, who pontificate on the presidential. One name that popped up was New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. You gotta be shitting me! No, oh, God, I wish I was. Andy's eyes are on the prize, too. He wants to run. He wants to do what his dad never could, sit in the Oval Office, assumingly after they had that chair deep clean, because you know Bannon has had his naked ass all over it. 
I mean, just Tuesday, Politico's Edwards Isaac DeVere reported that Obama and his veterans are urging Massachusetts, former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick to run in 2020. Patrick was a popular Democratic governor with strong liberal bona fides and a compelling backstory not unlike Barack Obama's. On paper, he's the perfect candidate, except Patrick's not exactly keen on the idea, and the Bernie base of the party, myself included in this, is definitely not keen on Patrick's post-gubernatorial time at Bain Capital. Remember we made fun of Romney for working at Bain Capital in 2012? Yeah, I don't care right now. If you resurrected FDR and put him on the ticket in 2020, you are not going to wedge a rich man through the needle's eyes of the Bernie base, period. It's not going to happen. But uh, again, I'm getting way ahead of myself with that camel. We have the midterms to deal with first and a far more important battle to fight and win because if we don't, we have zero chance and no chance of checking the growing power of the cheddar fascists in the White House. So uh, what are we thinking about the Congress there, Democrats? Well, that's being unfair because July 31st, the chairman of the DCCC told The Hill that the party would fund Democratic candidates who are not pro-choice. This has not met with universal approval from the party base. Burned it right down to the ground. A lot of people are pretty upset about the idea of the party funding people who would not actively defend abortion rights. Former DNC chair and presidential screamer Howard Dean said he would withhold his support from any candidate who did not support choice. This was deeply concerning to candidates running in the 2006 midterms. The Narrow and Emily's List, both staunch lobbyists for abortion rights, expressed their concerns publicly and one must assume most vociferously in private. Twitter is awash in rank-and-file Dems and progressives who are uh, not to uh, put too fine a point on it. I'm pissed off is what I am. The party leadership, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and yes, Bernie Sanders, has stated they do not want to apply a litmus test on this issue. Therefore, they are at least tacitly agreeing to an anti-choice candidate. If this continues, the split between the party and its base, already a tenuously bridged ravine, will widen into a big-ass chasm of rage spanned only by a spiderweb. And that rage will be aimed straight on at the party leadership, all except Bernie, because Bernie is the prince that was promised, according to this chick in the red dress that's been standing next to me. There's a really good logic, if you want to look at it that way, to what the party's doing. To win back Congress, the party needs to win in congressional districts where artisanal toilet paper shops and vegan colon cleansers are not part of the mainstream lineup. A vegan, a gluten-free vegan. In a lot of America, there are folks that would vote for a Democrat if only they weren't, uh, you know, such Democrats. Maybe ease up on all that identity politics which is any politics which are not strictly about the things white people care about. Maybe if the party could shut up about cops killing black folks and not mention all that raping going on. And yeah, really, if, uh, you know, if you could not mention immigrants. That would be great. Okay. The party could win in red states and purple districts if we could just ease up, you know. These were the folks that Hillary was courting so hard at the end of the election who went ahead and voted for Trump because I don't know her emails. And I'm not going to lie, we, we kind of need some of these people. If we could peel off six or eight of these districts, we could take back the house with one hand tied behind our back, break off a few thousand here and a few thousand there. We could even conceivably have a shot at taking the Senate. 
It would be a reach, but conceivably, we could do it. And I know, I know that pandering to these people seems absurd to those of you on the left, but let me tell you, for decades, the party had anti-choice, pro-gun, anti-gay marriage, pro-big oil, etc. members. These days, we still have a few. They're still, they're called blue dog Democrats because they're huge fans of Huckleberry Hound. I'm sorry I'm being told that's because they are blue districts in red states. Never mind. But that name came out of the Clinton administration. But they existed long before that. Before that, there were Reagan Democrats. And before that, there were just the Southern Democrats. And before that, well, there was the reason that we should actually have a fucking litmus test. Because some things are so fucking important that they should not be negotiable on. And that brings us to the way back. But we sure had a good time when we started way back when. Back in 1948, the Democratic Party was changing and changing, as Trump likes to say, big league. Truman was running for your election, and one of the planks in the party platform, inspired by Senator Hubert Humphrey, he crops up later in the party history, if you might remember, was the elimination of poll taxes in the South, the integration of the military and federal jobs, and a smattering of other civil rights stances that did not go well with the good folks down in Dixie. So, uh, you know what? The Democrats in the South split the party. Don't you know you never split the party? Clerics in the back, keep those fighters hailing hardy. The wizard in the middle, where he can shed some light. And you never let that damn thief out of sight. And form the Dixiecrats, Democrats who were staunch supporters of Jim Crow and all that went with supporting Jim Crow. I mean, after all, the party's slogan was segregation forever. The Dixiecrats are as it was properly known, the state's rights Democratic Party nominated vehement racist and hypocritical miscegenation fan James Strom Thurmond of South Carolina for president to run against Truman. Now, the Dixiecrats knew they couldn't win, but they hoped to peel off enough electoral votes Let me get, huh? and force the election into the House of Representatives where they might garner enough racists from the North and South of the Mason-Dixon line to put either Strom in office or wedge some concessions out of the Democrats. They, uh, they did not accomplish this. They won Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, and a single boat from my home state of Tennessee. You know, the best parts of the South. Truman won the election, but only after a closely contested, if not a close, electoral election. It was enough, however, to scare the Democrats to, into weakening their civil rights stances for decades and bring the rabid racist right wing back into the fold for a little while. Prior to 1948, the Democrats owned the South. After all, it was the Republicans who elected Lincoln and sent the army down to steal all their slaves. Over the next 20 years from 1948, Southern Democrats formed the backbone of the conservative wing of the Democratic Party, opposing any efforts to weaken Jim Crow and allow civil rights for African Americans. Meanwhile, across the rest of the country, African Americans and other minority groups, along with Catholics, East Coast intellectual types, and city folks, switched their party affiliations to Democrats in response to the party's embrace of labor and progressive social policies, particularly during the New Deal. This left the Democratic Party split on geographic lines with a liberal North and West and a staunchly conservative South. The party was exclusively split on the single litmus of civil rights. 
After the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the subsequent Voting Rights Act, the general culture of revolution in the 60s and the GOP and the Democrats flipped politically, starting with Nixon and culminating in Reagan. So the GOP, thanks to Reagan, switched the South to red states. Through most, if not all, of that transition, it was the ideological purity of being against the Civil Rights Act and the end of segregation that defined who you voted for. The party was panicked in 48, and it let the racist fringe back in. In 68, they said, you know what, fuck you. We don't want you in our party, and let them go Republican. If the party cared more about appeasing the wrong side of history and keeping the party unified, the reforms that at least on paper normalized African Americans and their minorities in this country might still be waiting to happen. There are some issues that you can be negotiable with those who you disagree. But there are some issues that you just don't budge because if you do, if you give the opposite side an inch, they will be parsecs away before you blink. Civil rights was one issue, abortion rights is another. If the right had any flex in them, we might be able to come to a compromise. They don't, so we can't. History teaches us what happens when you try to compromise with the zealot. The zealot always wins. Now, not all anti-choice people are zealots. Many are rational individuals with moral views on the matter, different than mine and the position of the party. You can believe in all the other positions of the party except for one, this one thing, and it does not make you a zealot. Until you cast a vote that deprives women of their choice. And is that a risk we should subsidize? And I know I'm, I, it sounds like I'm advocating cookie-cutter candidates, legions of demi-burnies cloned and sent out to fight the wars in the South and the Midwest. I'm not. Each congressional district is a lot like an asshole. They're unique in their own special way, but still a place from which a turd emerges and then goes to Congress. Ew, seriously? That is so gross. Purity tests on the party line do not win elections, so I don't expect a candidate in Georgia to stand for the same things as a candidate in Wisconsin. But we as an entity decided on certain bedrock conditions for being part of our entity that we cannot turn our backs on and still be the entity that we proclaim ourselves to be. The expedience of funding anti-choice Democrats for short-term gain is a long-term loss for those people whose rights we've made a promise to protect. I mean, there are a lot of places Democrats could win if we ran candidates that disagreed with a party. We could clean the floor in the, with the GOP in Texas if we ran on economic populism and vehement xenophobia against Latinos. If you want to win in Alabama, run a Democrat who's staunchly against civil rights and for bringing private prisons to the state so white folks can having jobs locking up black people. We could get the Midwest back tomorrow if we ran a Democrat who campaigned on expanding the industrial base of the district and barring Muslims from living there. I am talking winning bigly. We would be so sick of winning, we couldn't stand it. But we wouldn't be Democrats anymore. Are our promises to African Americans, Latinos, Muslims, gays, or transgenders any less binding than our promises to women? It's vital that we win next year, that we take at least one House of Congress back. But if we win by becoming like the people we are trying to defeat, how the fuck is that winning? It's an old trope in fantasy fiction that when you fight evil, you risk becoming what you fight against. 
see the entire Star Wars trilogy. The Democrats are walking along a path that leads us to becoming Anakin, and I'll be damned if I'm going to associate with a, with a whiny little ass bite like that. The next few years are going to be awful. We're in a fight for the future of the United States as a functioning democracy, much less a liberal democracy. The time, the desire to do whatever it takes to win is going to push in directions that we would not go in normal times. These are not normal times, but I want to take back the country from the kind of people who want to use it for their own personal spit cup. You know the kind, lip pouch with Copenhagen, a super big gulp with 96 ounces of tobacco infused spit, the slow, repetitive sound of <coughs> for hours on end while they expand on their philosophy of racial purity and why Lurleen had to have a tit job because ain't no way them titties got that big but just having one baby. Except, you know, they are politicians, so slightly worse. We cannot become what we fight against. If for no other reason, then I will never again live in a place where random vessels of spit adorn the furniture. So how about crafting a message that appeals to the things that will help Americans, all of us, rather than helping some by hurting others? I'm no marketing genius. Shit, I can't even market this show. I mean, how the fuck did I think it was a good idea to make a calendar of shirtless podcast producers? No one wants to see you and George trying to flex, Gavin. It's not good. It's definitely not for sharing. But maybe we could focus on those things which people need. Jobs that aren't based on 19th century technology or ch selling cheap shit in a big box store. We might discuss the need for a planet their grandchildren can live on in 50 years. How about a crazy idea like their bridges not dropping their families into the local rivers when they drive across. Want to throw some red meat out to the white working class? Talk about how it might be nice for their kids to go to a school where they can play, on, play football on a field that doesn't have gopher holes big enough to hide from a North Korean missile strike. The GOP wins on dystopia. That's what fucking fear sells. You think people looked at that festering hemorrhoid and said, well, that guy has a plan for a better tomorrow. Fuck no, they looked at him because he was telling them all the things they were secretly afraid were happening. Maybe we could start by showing these timid fucks that there's no brown monster beneath their bed and the Garcia family across the street is exactly the same as they are. They want a good job, a safe neighborhood, good schools, and to watch their football game in peace. We probably shouldn't mention that their football is actually soccer. Democrats can sell a message of, I, I don't know, hope. We did pretty well with that one once upon a time, but we have to give something, people something to hope for. Obama ran on hope and change, but not much change, so people stopped hoping. You want to win in places where the tangerine twitler won? Give people some concrete ways you can help them, and not the same timid-ass social issues that the GOP use to split this country apart. You want a slogan, Democrats? Try this one. Vote for a Democrat, because if America is broken, we've got duct tape and super glue. I'm Dave Bledsoe, and I approve this message. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, 
Priceline. <laughs> that is it for our show this week. Just a quick housekeeping note on our sponsor from last week, the Moocha. He welched on his ad buy, and we're now out 83 cents, that fucker owes us. So, uh, fuck that guy. Don't call the Mooch. Honestly, what were we thinking letting a skeevy, glad-handed asshole sponsor the show like that? If uh, you're interested in a non-skeevy, don't-give-a-fuck asshole, you could rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. It helps other people find the show so they can be put off by my personality. If you'd like another reason to personally dislike me, follow the show on Twitter at the hell underscore podcast or the show name on Facebook where you will find other objectionable positions I've taken. All of the reasons to find me personally repellent are the show name on SoundCloud and at www.whatthehellpodcast.com. For me, Dave Bledsoe, the still oiled up and nearly naked producer Gavin, and all the other fictional fashion models on this show, we want to say, if you play this podcast on your telephone and my voice is too rough from cigarettes, sometimes you might think we get it all wrong, but then we'll all get drunk together and you'll forget and say... You better bet your life. You better. You better, you better, you bet. We'll see you all next week.